0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, we are grateful that you have brought us together on this Monday night. Lord, very grateful that you have gifted us this week with Ephraim and his wife Annette. I pray that you will bless them in their ministry. We thank you, Lord, for the wisdom and the insight that you've given Ephraim. And tonight, I pray that our conversation will be rich and full and that you will guide us by your spirit. And let this be of mutual encouragement, Lord, both to him and and to us who are gathered here tonight. We're, we're in need, Lord, of your guidance and your wisdom. And we ask you to meet us even this evening. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, we'll start with a little bit I've, I've known you for a while now. We were talking about this at dinner, but maybe if we could just tell the folks here something about your your upbringing very quickly, and your theological training, and formation, and maybe some of the major influences that you've had in your in your thought and your work. Sure. Thanks.
1: Uh, also, thanks to everybody here. I'm, I'm very honored you would come out in the evening and spend time listening to me glad. Mark, I, you probably came out ask for Mark, so oh, yeah. that's good. The um, and thank you, Mark. Um, so those of you who don't know me, I guess you know I'm from Ragnar uh, in that sense. Uh, I'm a priest in the Episcopal Church, so I teach at um, a seminary, Theological College in Toronto, Canada. And Annette and I have been there for um, 15 years, but well, we moved from Colorado. Um, In terms of my formation, um, I was not raised a Christian. I grew up in in Berkeley, California in the heyday of of, uh, hippies and people's park riots and uh, flower people and all that, and uh, a child of the university my father taught there. So uh, that was my formation Um, when I was in grade school, our gym teacher had us go out on Telegraph Avenue and pass out pamphlets for the Black Panthers and so on and so forth and that you know, uh, that all seemed perfectly normal and everything. Um, But at age 14, um, I became a Christian, and um, partly in the midst of what probably many adolescents are struggling with all kinds of things. But in my particular case, uh, were some family struggles and. The culture of Berkeley, California at the time was not conducive to, to sort of sorting that out very clearly. So I was lucky, I'm saying this to all young people and all youth ministers, I was lucky to have a friend who invited me to a youth group, and uh, this was a Catholic church, and uh, I had a chance, I was saying this to some people here, that it was an elderly Catholic priest who would come and talk to this small group of kids whose parents made them go, About him, that that was his name was an elderly, probably uh, alcoholic Irish priest, and uh, um, he he could wax eloquent on hell. And I'm not saying that's what attracted me to the Christian faith, but it did not push me away. Just just the opposite. There was something about uh, the fact that somebody was saying uh, to me today earlier. Um, Some people come to the faith because they're looking for something deeper, not because they're looking for, they can't articulate some sense of guilt or shame or or so on, but their life just isn't all there, and and that was certainly the case for me. I began attending church, and I had no religious upbringing, as I said, and all the way through university, um, what fed me was simply going to... um, I Ended up in the Episcopal Church very quickly because of a move we made, and that was the church nearby. I went to daily, daily Eucharist at noon during lunchtime in my high school. It was listening to the gospel read. I just remember this every day. Have somebody stand up and you know the, the gospel, you know, according to uh, Jesus Christ, according to Luke or Matt Mark or whatever, and and there was no preaching, so I was not converted by preaching. Um, I, I always have to tell myself that when I get up and preach. It's, it's not, not as important as you might think. But. Um, and I went through college, and I was very active. Again, those of you involved in campus ministries, I was very active in the church's youth ministry, uh, the, the Episcopal Church's youth ministry at the time. Um, and made a huge difference. And at some point, I, got a, I had a sense I, I might be called to the ministry. You're never sure. I applied to lots of different things, programs to do after college, um, and I did get in at the time uh, to Divinity School, Yale Divinity School, and they didn't care whether I believed much or anything, but I, uh, so that was the end, as long as my grades were good, so, uh, that, I ended up going there, and my point in all this is I got to seminary, and I didn't really know that much, theologically, I, I was a, uh, major in classical languages and art history. I didn't take us. The only religion course I took in in, in in undergraduate was a history course, a social history course on the African American church yeah. in the United States, uh, which is actually highly theological in many indirect ways, but it, that's not why I took it, and whatever. So I got to seminary. I, I knew the Bible, sort of, but only by hearing it in church, and I know a lot of people Poo poo reading the lectionary. Um, and for good reasons. So I said, you have to listen to it and you have to go to church regularly for it to make a difference. But well, I was fortunately one of those people who did. So I actually knew more about the Bible than I think I realized getting to seminary compared with some of my, my um, uh, colleagues, peers who had gone to, you know, been religion majors and grown up in churches and so on um, simply by listening to it uh, in church. Uh, but nonetheless, I had very little training. I was fortunate to end up at Yale without knowing why at the time. It's not why I went. I'm not sure why I went there, I actually, I don't know. Uh, in terms of, somebody told me I should apply. Um, at a time when it was at its, if those of you know anything about Yale, um, Divinity School, there was a period, um, and all schools go through this, where all the stars align. In this case, faculty stars. Certain people are there. The right people, and something magical and wonderful happens. And as I say, that can happen at all schools, but it's never consistent. But I was lucky to get there at a time when Brevard Childs, George Lindbeck, David Kelsey, um, Hans Fry, uh, a number of others, I could con- Henry Nowen and others were all there at once to teaching together, and it was just remarkable. I didn't know how lucky. Um, you know, to take a course of in intro to Old Testament with Barbara Childs, <laughs> intro to New Testament with Abraham Malherbe. These may not be names that mean much to you, but nonetheless, for those in, in these fields, th- this was a high point in the, this was the 70s um, uh, of American religious Christian scholarship. And um, I, I learned a lot, what I learned there at that time, For this neophyte, unformed theologically, was that the gospel um, located and articulated in the Old and New Testaments was at the center of everything. That was the place to sort of go. Um, At the same time, I was very lucky to also have had a dean of the Episcopal Wing of the Olivet School, because they had kind of a special house of studies, as it were, uh, with their own dean. Who had been a former, uh, most of his life, missionary in Southeast Asia, and he would bring people in speakers uh, from around the world, people he had met, or others from Africa, and, and, and so on and so forth, and and he did it on purpose to try to get people to, to sort of uh, catch the bug about the larger church, which I caught, and I I really did, and they had this wonderful internship program where they. Uh, he set up where I went to work for for four months in the Philippines, up in in a very rural mountainous area. Um, And just sort of, what's the church like somewhere else than the United States, or really somewhere else? And it was wonderful. And so what I did immediately after, I mean, I set myself up. I was ordained in the Diocese of California. um, But, I went off, and at the time the Episcopal Church had a missions office, which it had, a very vital one, a huge one, uh, through the 80s, that has that sort of all disappeared, but um, I was a missionary, appointed missionary for the National Church, and went to work in Burundi, East Africa, uh, which was, uh, uh, still is, a small, very poor country, but had been through a big, not one from the there, but a big mess uh, politically and so on in the church. And they had no seminary, and all the young clergy had been murdered in the civil war for various reasons, and they only had very elderly clergy, none of them had been educated and So they needed to build this seminary. For some reason, they, they hired a 26, 27-year-old to be part of the teaching staff of building up this new school. So I was thrust into this place where I had to come up and teach. We had no books except the Bible had to have a full curriculum of Old New Testament, theology, ethics, church history, and so on, with no, no books except the Bible. And I had a couple colleagues, I colleagues, one British colleague and one uh, uh, Murundi colleague. We had to figure out how to teach this stuff with nothing but what we did. I, I brought a few books of, myself, of my own, but it was all in French. Uh, which I didn't speak well, and most of the students didn't speak it well either, so you get a sense of sort of communication was was pretty Um, free-flowing. But that was probably the the most formative time religiously. I mean, everything's formative. There's no non-formative time in one's faith, but in, in, in 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 a tangible way, the most formative theological ecclesial time in my life partly because of the situation, what it meant to be a Christian in this very repressive, difficult society that had been, individuals had been, you know, about the Rwandan genocide. Uh, this was a similar, smaller-scale thing 20 years before that they had been through uh, a few years before I got there. And just trying to walk through that and try to understand something that is beyond the, the, the pale of certain my ability. And to be a teacher. I mean, how dare I teach? Um, but, but I was asked to do that. I think that's one of the things that also has made me realize that teachers really know very little. I mean, I began teaching at a level in which I knew I know nothing. I nothing. And as I've gotten older, um, it's very easy to get at a place where you think you know something. But I'm grateful for the fact that I, I learned from the start that I didn't, and I, I get reminded of that. I have, very students,
0: I have students here tonight, so we need. To be yeah. <laughs> <One of laughs> Although I big, think they, I think the gig stuff. Well, well, yeah. <laughs> One of the big
1: things I learned, and I know I'm taking a long time on this, but actually I think this sort of story is important, whether mine in particular is another matter. But I believe theology is done improperly done, as it's rooted in the reality of Christian men and women who live their lives in a certain time and place in certain ways. Uh, books are important, but they're only important in a very secondary way. Um, I learned, one thing I learned was the utter centrality, and I said I'd already begun getting there, but I still wasn't there yet, of the scriptures. This was a, uh, some of you may know something of the history of The Anglican Church in East Africa, the East African Revival, so-called, was this huge uh, evangelical revival that began in the late 20s in the area of around Uganda, Rwanda, the borders from different then, and also Burundi. And it was this huge movement that took over Christianity, uh, not just Anglicans, but it was centered in the Anglican Church at this time, and carried through into the 70s. And it was a very peculiar kind of revivalism, it was a real revival, but it was very different from various revivals uh, in the past. For one thing, it didn't split the church. There were lots of moments it might have, but in this case, it didn't split the church. And one reason was at the center of this revival, East African revival, was the call to communal accountability and repentance at the cross. So one of the things they had there as a sort of form of their... Standard revival organization, if you will, it was initially quite spontaneous. Were these groups where you would meet, you know, in a circle, uh, regularly, and you would confess your sins to to your group, and then everybody would listen and respond, and you'd take your sins. You've heard this phrase, and you'd lay them at the cross of Jesus. Uh, the, the current uh, the church of Anglican uh, Church of Kenya. Um, uh, Eucharistic service, which they revised in the 70s, has this as part of it. At the at the at the, at the um, uh, confession and absolution stage, everybody says they all take their sins and they throw them to the foot of the cross. But I think anyway, the point here was that this accountability to you're not you're, you could never be better than the person next to you because the only way you could be better was to be worse. <laughs> you know? In other words, to be a greater sinner. That, that, was your, that, was, that, was, that was sort of the hierarchy. I mean, it wasn't that you tried to, I mean, you, you could sort of get into one of these things where who has the worst sin to confess but um, that wasn't the point. So this revival was deeply scriptural, deeply Christocentric but it brought the church to this place of everybody on the same place and on the same level of needing the grace of God's forgiveness in Christ. Um, and that was, that permeated, on the one hand, it permeated the Anglican Church in Burundi. That was a positive. But the other side was, at the same time, here was this church who had lived through this civil war where people massacred each other, and that included Christians who were members of the church. So you had this weird thing where, you know, this deeply, quite genuine humility was at the center of faith, as well as horrific hidden sins. And so in one sense also a deep hypocrisy at the same time. And that's something else that's shaping, is this struggle to understand there is no pure church. Um, in fact, the church that is most devoted is frequently the one that is most messed up in many ways. And one has to be willing to sort of face it to that. Um, I, I came back from Burundi, it was a political thing, I was thrown out of the country, and went into parish ministry, and uh, met my wife Annette, who was in seminary in New York, I was working in Brooklyn, and we got married, we worked in the inner city in Cleveland for a few years, there was no money. Uh, as I say, what do you do when you run out of money and don't have a job? You go to graduate school. So <laughs> I went back to uh, Yale to get a doctorate in theology. Uh, and I went back, uh, this was the early 90s, and 89, uh, 90, and some of those wonderful people that I had gone to seminary with as did, were still there, but others had gone on died, provided Charles was retiring, uh, and so on and so forth. So it wasn't quite the same thing. Uh, and yet there were still some of these wonderful people. I worked with uh, George Limbeck. And um, other people, a man's a Catholic theologian, uh, Louis Dupre, who just died mm-hmm. a couple months ago um, at a great age. Um, and I worked in the area, I went there deeply interested in uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in part because of its connection with ecclesiology, with the church, I was interested in what the church was, how it witnessed, its integrity, kinds of things I've just talked about. Um, so I got into that and I, I studied a, um, uh, this is where sort of my historical theology, I consider myself a theologian, not a historian, but I do think, as I just said, that theology is done in real life. So I picked a case study, as it were, a historical case study. It was an 18th century episode in France where there was a huge breakout of miracles, healing miracles in Paris, uh, it, within, a, within a group, a kind of... Uh, outside a forming group of French Catholics known as the Jansenists, those of you who know who Blaise Pascal de Pensey was, he was a Jansenist. It was a movement, very rigorous, uh, sort of Augustinian um, grace above all, and so on, but they were Catholics. And these miracles broke out. This was uh, after the heyday of the Jansenists, uh, heroes like Pascal had passed, at the tomb of one of their one of their heroes. And um, there were hundreds of and the Jamfist movement had attracted doctors and, and lawyers. That was the, the class in which they spread. And what they did is they documented them all. They were doctors. They went and examined all these people who were healed with this, that, and the other. And the lawyers took affidavits and so on and so on. It is the single best documented set of miracles in the history of the church outside of more recently in Lourdes. Um, there's nothing like it. Vast amounts of materials that Hardly anybody examined. And the Catholic hierarchy eventually said they were false. They were either made up or demonic. And so my, my dissertation was about what was this argument? How do you know whether the Holy Spirit was really working there or whether it was the devil? How do you know? How does anybody know? And um, that's a big ecclesial question. <laughs> How do you know whether your church is really being like, you know, oh, the God, God told me to do this, or the Spirit's leading us in this direction? How do you know? Um, and, and and I don't want to tell you what my conclusion was because it wasn't clear in many ways <laughs> um, you don't really know and so the issue is what do you do in the face of God doing something you can't really properly be sure about which is I think a pretty big issue in our lives but anyway that that's, that's why I was trained in pneumatology I went back to parish work then went back to teach at Wycliffe and I've been working in the area of ecclesiology, pneumatology, and scripture. Those are the three things that I got out of Well, that's a long way. Can oh, I love it. That? That's great. Uh, um,
0: and I, I'm, I, for those of you who may be interested, I met Ephraim when I was a graduate student 2003, I think we, although well, you don't remember. Our I, 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 I This came out of a <laughs> I don't
2: remember meeting
1: you, but anyway.
0: But most uh, recently, It's um, always good to um, mention Ephraim. <laughs> right. so <sorry>. um, <laughs> <laughs> Ephraim and I were co-editors for a book that was dedicated to my doctoral supervisor who's a, a long-term term friend of, of Ephraim. So I've, I've, I've gotten to see Ephraim in the, in the trenches on the editorial side of things. All right, uh, we're, we're really here tonight to talk about this book a bit, A Time to Keep, uh, the subtitle is Theology, Mortality, and the Shape of a Human Life. And I thought, you know, um, Ephraim's a, ch- a challenging read in some ways, and uh, I've been reading you for a while now, and when I think about your books, like A Brutal Unity, which is on ecclesiology, and then you did a book on the Holy Spirit, A Profound Ignorance, and I think this one followed on the heels of that, or was this in between, in between. In, in between those two? So you have a, I mean, all, all of your sort of theological concerns just seem to be deeply rooted in the question about human embodiedness. Um, you know, your, your ecclesiology is concerned about an abstracted ecclesiology that's not linked into the messiness of the, the embodied form of the church itself. This is what you say about this book, Ephraim. You said you're raising the question about what the lived context of human existence is over time. Uh, so the importance of the body and embodiment. So, so let me ask you this question. Why, why is this topic in particular so important to you? And, and perhaps the better question to that might be, what are you trying to correct in your writings and your emphasis on embodiment um, a, a, a sinful form, scriptural figuration. What, what are you trying to correct that you see as a as a problem in the church that needs some reorienting?
1: Well, I think one of the big challenges, and, and to that degree, some of the things I just said about my time in Burundi, it sounds quite relevant, at least for me. Um, I think, not necessarily in the tradition, or certainly not consistently in the Christian tradition, there's been a lot of Moments and tendencies amongst Christians over the years, centuries, in different churches. It's not just tied to this or that Catholic, Protestant, uh, within Protestant tradition. There's been a tendency to um, dichotomize li- our life in this world and heaven, you could put it that, or our, our life in the body and spiritual truth and reality. The, the latter being the thing that's really important And life here that we live during our um, uh, four score, if we're lucky, um, uh, years on Earth um, as being less important. And the, the, the payoff of that splitting is that we actually don't pay attention, we have not properly. Paid attention to given thoughtful prayerful theologically astute energies to understanding uh, the value of the difficulty of life in this world, including the church. That's why the church, to me, can can split all the time. That's why people can go off in this direction, and that direction, um, and and. Bad things can happen, and and no, you know you can sort of then carry on, and it doesn't matter, um, etc., etc., etc. The church in Burundi, as I said, was this funny mixture of humility and and, and murderous hypocrisy. How is that possible? Well, many Christians can say, "Well," and they did, and they do. Um, Yeah, that's not good. But you know, I can repent, and thank goodness, uh, with my repentance, the Lord accepts me, and I will get to heaven. Um, and this other stuff is difficult, but it's, it's secondary, ultimately. So that's a problem. It's a problem that has as its consequences, literally murder. Um, this book on Brutal Unity that I wrote, I, I, I originally wanted to entitle it, Division is Murder, but the editor didn't think I was And it. And um, uh, that's fine, that's fine. But it is. The history of the church and its divisions... And little divisions and big divisions is one that has as its consequence uh, Christians killing Christians and Christians killing other people. Um, And that's just the reality. Um, So, it seems to me that we are asked to pay attention to the things that order our life here. Not that heaven, if you will, or the spiritual uh, realities of, 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 uh, of divine life and its gifts are... Secondary, certainly not, or unimportant, and not ultimate, but that they find their ultimacy only as they're engaged here and integrated into a life here. That's one thing. So the church's life was one thing and my interest in it that pressed me in in trying to think about, you say monument, which is a very very uh, jargony uh, term, faddish term in these days, not just in the church but in philosophy and culture. Uh, and so on. The other thing that pressed me, and I think I say something about it at the beginning of the, of the book is uh, the, the debates and divisions we've had over sexuality uh, in which I've been uh, deeply involved in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion more broadly over the years. Highly divisive. Uh, I'm a conservative on all these things. a very traditional list, but how did we get to the point that our culture and so on seems to think that, and does think, not seems to think, thinks that the ordering of our sexual existence is something that we can choose, it's something that can go in this direction, it can anyway, go into all of that. And I taught a class, uh, I was asked to teach, I didn't want to, at Wycliffe, on uh, Christian sexuality, which was meant to be a um, sort of historical and theological overview for students at the uh, level. Um, and you know, I had to put that together from scratch because there isn't any syllabus out there that's particularly uh, standard on these matters, let alone one that can deal with all the issues that are going on um, uh, today in our culture. And in doing that, I, I had to do a lot of reading, I, and and I learned a lot. And one of the things I learned, and one of the things I needed to try to figure out, was why did gay gay marriage and then now transgenderism why did that arise as it did uh, not just culturally but it, within the kind of philosophical and, and theological uh, uh, framework of context that we're living in um, and why when it did It's basically because I lived through that I said in Berkeley um, I lived through when I went to seminary um, I just assumed that gay people Should get married. I did. The church I went to had the first gay clergy person in the Episcopal Church, Ellen Barrett. She was a woman. And um, I was there as a high school student when she preached her first sermon. And it meant nothing to me. I mean, it just seemed normal. And, And so I actually moved in a very different direction. And one of the things I had to look at was Sort of where I grew up. I don't mean with Berkeley, but that time and that place. What was going on that these things were normal, were normalized in that sense. Anyway, um, to make a long story short, one of the key things I discovered in my reading in preparation, and actually not right away, it took several iterations of this course to, to come clear about it, and it's one of the central things, uh, the elements historically that, that in, in the book, is the huge effect that the doubling of the average human life expectancy had over the last century. And I didn't know anything about this. I mean, I knew that that had happened vaguely, but I didn't realize this was a topic of great concern among scholars and and, uh, epidemiologists and so on. There's a guy named James Riley, but there are others who have written about this. He calls this the Great Health Transition, which took place somewhere around 1900. A little earlier in some places in Britain, a little afterwards. But take Canada as a beautifully perfect example. The average lifespan in Canada in the year 1900 was 40. The average lifespan in Canada in the year 2000 was 80. That's basically what has happened around the world, uh, and ha- it's happening still. Even those places like Burundi, where the average lifespan when I was there, 1981 was 43 or something, it's now pushing to 60 uh, and so on. So all these places are moving into this. And you realize this happened in a hundred years. A hundred years. The average lifespan of, hu- uh, of human beings around the world was around 40, more or less, through 1700 around the world and in Europe. It began to start creeping up in the 18th century in Britain, not many other places, for various reasons, hygiene and so on, that nobody quite even understood. But the big issue was, around 1900, two things. Washing hands at childbirth by the doctors. That, because one of the big things that pushed life expectancy down on the average was maternal deaths at childbirth. So that was number one. And then, a whole slew, very rapidly in place, of drugs, eventually into antibiotics in the early 20th century, that simply just changed everything. Everything. But what, this may all seem, well, of course. What does this have to do with sexuality? Well, it turns out everything. Because as people live longer, they began to think, well, I mean, they didn't think intentionally, you don't have to have as many children, you don't have to get married as as soon, Uh, uh, as you did. Uh, Fertility rates began to drop drastically. Um, And then, of course, um, but but it already was happening before the pill, but the pill was then another piece that went into it, Uh, contraception and so on, that fit into this rapidly changing thing. So what eventually happened and became clear by the 60s and 70s was that children and sex had nothing to do with each other. Nothing. Now, obviously, we know that's not true and the fact that our lifespans have doubled from 40 to 80, and by the way when you do that, these are averages people obviously live to longer than 40 uh, but what it meant was that if you were born okay, here's another thing, it is important uh, until 1900 more or less if you had children, you could expect a third of them would die before they were 10 every mother and father probably had at least one child to die, everyone and usually more and every every child had a sibling or two or three, who they got to know or and uh, love, and who died or or was born and, and they didn't last too long. So, you know that all disappeared. So the other thing that disappeared was death. <laughs> so you had this decoupling of of sex and children. You also had a decoupling of sex and death. <laughs> and all these things were decoupled. Of course, everybody dies at the same rate. That hasn't changed. That's hundred percent, right? But but death gets pushed into this. Uh, you can call it the senilization of death. It's older people who die. We see this with the COVID thing, big time, right? And it, and the fact that you know three quarters of the close to a million deaths of COVID in the U.S. are people over sixty-five um, is striking. <laughs> but many people will react to that in a very oddly unimpressed way. Well, sort of like, duh. <laughs> but really? Duh. How did that happen? Um, well, it happened because for the last 30, 40 years, uh, death and being old go together. Death doesn't belong with anybody else. And, and, and of course, people do die before they're old. It's called a tragedy. You never called tragedies, deaths, tragedies before. That's a modern use of the term tragedy. It's interesting to trace the meaning of tragedy, how it's used. Tragedy, used to, as in the Greek, tragedies and so on, it was something that happened inevitably. It was bad, but you, you couldn't escape it, and it happened. A tragedy now is something that happens out of the blue that you never expected. It's a complete reversal of the meaning. Um, anyway, uh, you start looking at sexuality in these terms, and I came to realize that... Sexuality is lodged. That's to say what we call sexuality. Having sex, the relationships of people who are having sex, the relationships of sexes, men and women. Sexuality is lodged in what it means to be a human person who is born in a very vulnerable condition and remains that way for a very few short years and dies. Sexuality is all about that. And we don't think that anymore. We think it's something else. We think it's something you enjoy, and you choose, and you do it when you want to do it, and so on and so forth. When in fact it's utterly interwoven with what it means to be a human being who is mortal. That, that, that That's that's what this book comes down to say. And so the, the thing about sex that's why I got into this, the book is not about sexuality, there's a chapter about it. Uh, But it's about the fact that sexuality is what it is, uh, because it's about something far more important, which is the fact that God creates us as mortal creatures. And that our lives, and the way we order these mortal lives, are at the center of God's gifts to us. What it means to be created. That is our gift. That is the gift of us. We are created. But we're created mortal. Which means that everything about our mortal life is tied up with God's gifts. Uh, You can't pull them apart. You can't segregate these gifts. You can't segregate sexuality from being born to a mother and a father. Mm -hmm. You can't, and that's an obvious place, but you also can't separate out forgiveness from the fact that you have to live with people for only a few years, and you better figure that one out. Mm -hmm. Um, And our society has also changed in many ways where we can leave the people we don't get along with. For much of human history, you could not. Not. You were stuck in a village. You were stuck in a little town. You were stuck with a family. And that could be miserable, but you also learned how to deal with misery. You know, One of the things I like to say is whoever whoever told you your work should be satisfied? <laughs> Where did we get that idea? And, but we have it. And that's true for any, everything. Whoever told you that life in the ha- and home was supposed to be happy? <laughs> I'm not saying it shouldn't be happy. You shouldn't strive for it. But that work, toil, there's a chapter on toil in the book, uh, which is given at the front end of our existence in the, uh, when we're thrown out of the garden. Although it appears that Adam and Eve had to work in the garden. They were told they were killing the soil. Uh, it becomes toil, that work, when they leave. In any case, that's what we do. Um, but that toil is part of the gift that God gives us. We better learn to live with it. Um. That's part of it. Anyway, okay. Well, okay. Can, can we talk some more about sex? <laughs> um,
0: so I, I I read your section on sexuality, and um, I, I want to press you a little bit on this. So you're 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 linking human sexuality to our mortality and the givenness of our deaths. There's, a, there's this, and I think you're, the terms you're with sex, work, food, relations, those really only make some sense from the standpoint of our mortality and our deaths. Is there a, for lack of a better term, is there an eschatological dimension to sexuality as well? I mean, in your in your reading of Leviticus, and I don't want to get too descriptive here, but the, the bodily fluids that are involved in, in, in human sexuality, male to female, toward procreation, um, Leviticus speaks of those in terms of life itself. I mean, these, these things are tethered up with life. Song of Solomon, of course, links this to something that's transcendent. Um, can you talk a little bit about that as well that, that, that seems to be something also so people
1: have pushed back at me and I think rightly I didn't know this uh, on this yeah. issue you know what about well, the two issues one is sort of eschatology the end, heaven, whatever you want to call it in general this book says nothing about heaven and, and um, people have pushed back at me and said but you know if this is the only life as Paul says for which we are here you know what's the point you know, we are the most to be pitied. There's no resurrection. Um, but my purpose wasn't to, to, to dismiss that. But I do think there's been a tendency in the Christian tradition, uh, not always, again, you know, you, you look at this and you think it's all one thing, that's not true, but there's been a tendency, and it's act, it actually grew um, uh, more more recently, to devalue this, this world in favor of going to heaven. It goes back to the early church. Augustine says, and by the way, there's nothing Christian about it. He got this from, from pagan philosophers. You Ultimately, he says, you should be happy if your friend dies. Because, he says, I oh, know it's hard. You should be sad. That's okay to be sad if your good friend dies. But you should actually, in the end, be happy. Because they're being spared from the miseries of this life. They're free from it. And that's a common view. Uh, it was a common view. In the church for a long time. That's one side. The other side, sexuality, is you know, Jesus never married. I um, mean, you know, I know there are some books about him and Mary Magdalene, so that's just stupid. Um, uh, he, he never married. He didn't have kids. He dies when he's uh, mature for their era. Remember, life expectancy was 40. So uh, for him, as for everybody else, uh, 30. So he's at the prime of life. Um, he dies. And, 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 there, and Paul himself says, you know, it's better if, not to get married if you're not already married. And, and uh, well, there's a lot of debate about who he's talking to, and I, I won't get into that, but still, it says that, he says that. Uh, and there grew up fairly quickly within the church's tradition, um, and by the 5th century it becomes the elite, authoritative, theological view that celibacy is better than married life. And that when you go to heaven and they pick up you know, the phrase of Jesus, you know, you don't get married. You're not given and taken marriage in heaven. You're like the angels that Gregory of Nyssa, a great 4th, uh, 5th century uh, theologian, you know, originally human beings weren't even created as male and female, he said. We, we were androgens. Oh. So when we go to heaven, we get to get back that angelic androgynismity or whatever it is. Um, and and so you know, sexual differences is part of our fallen nature. It's not something of our redeemed nature. So there's been this tradition, and it can sound like what I'm saying is ev- all the eggs are in the basket of mortal existence, in which you are a man and a woman, and you, if God gives you that opportunity, you have children, and you tend them, and you tend each other, and you get sick and you die, and hopefully that can continue with the gifts you've passed on to the next generation. You're putting all your eggs into that basket. Where is the great life of God that goes beyond this limited existence? And um, what I want to say is the only way to get to that great life of God is through that that existence. It's not that it's not there, but to try to describe it in a way that's independent of the lives you and I are living having been created as we are, to try to get to heaven and describe it and to, to, to value it and to lift up its virtues in a way that sort of sidesteps or has a detour around this life with its fluids of blood mm-hmm. that can be both spilled and so on is, is a mistake because if life is in the blood, it's because God, Jesus' is life, It means actually our our avenue, our pathway to the eternal, absolute life of God is through what we have been given, not through something we have not been given. And I'm not sure I have the answer to how that is. But we're told certain things. We're given promises. Much of what the gospel is is a promise, I believe that. It's It's not describing heaven. It's describing the fact that we are granted the greatest gift of God's life through this gift of our life that he has first granted us as the foundation of our hope. Um, So, I mean, it's a fair question. I just think it's premature in a way. Mm -hmm. Or uh, you ask me what I'm trying to correct. I I think there's been too much jumping ahead. Mm -hmm. Um, And oddly enough, I think our modern contemporary culture with its... Different views of, of sex, and so on, is highly disembodied. It actually, it's not that it's all too in this world. There's this sense that if you read sort of you know sort of more radical theology and philosophy, not just secular cultural discussions of this about you know what is the meaning of sexual desire, you're often hearing what sounds very mystical, religious language, as if. I'm getting into touch with the divine through these sorts of whatever it is that one is fulfilling uh, with whatever sexual avenue one is is going for. So it's not like it's actually rooted in this world. Uh, I I think that's a mistake. Lots of modern sexual views are, in philosophical terms, highly idealistic. Um, They have nothing to do with life in this world. They have everything to do with imaginings of being connected to God in some other way that's not bound to people mm. and to the limited character of the lives we are given. I just want to say one other thing.
0: Please, please.
1: Um, so sex.
3: Yeah. Um,
1: you said you want to talk about sex. It's a Monday night. The word sex, you know, I, I do a lot of etymologies and I think that's a limited way of doing theology, but it's also helpful. The word sex means separation. We say have sex or you know do sex is, sex are acts for us. They're acts or their desires. But at root, sex simply means a man and a woman who are differentiated. That's what the word means scissors, all that. It's a separation. It's a distinction. And um, therefore, to talk about sex is to talk about that. The the, the, the relationship and the engagement of that distinction of male-female, which isn't just an act of having sex, nor is it an act simply of procreation, although it it involves that. It's the act of a life. It's of coming together. It's of befriending. It's of having acts of sex and maybe having children, but then it's raising them. Then it's losing them. Then it's engaging them. Then it's engaging one another. Comforting, tending, dealing with illness, dealing with joys, and then dying with one another. That's sex. That is sex. And the Christian word for sex is marriage. Because that's what marriage is. So it's it's not a thing. It's not a moment. It's a life. It's a life of differentiated relationships. And you see, that all disappears in an era when these things no longer have any traction, socially, medically, whatever, which puts us Christians in a very strange place. It's very hard to talk about these matters when none of these things have that rootedness anymore. That goes back to this great health transition in the pressures of daily life, uh, where death, procreation, tending, um, fidelity... Uh, and its failures and what they mean are, 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 are the stuff of how we survive. Or survival—it's uh, not survival anymore for many people. Of course, it is when you look around and you talk to people, but that's not the word that people give to it. People are miserable in our culture in many ways around all these matters. But we don't—it's not just we don't have the language. We don't have the actual cultural stuff, the currency, to deal with it. And so I think it is one of the great... You know, some people say, well, let's get beyond sexuality. This is a tiresome topic. It is in any But I also think it touches something that as Christians, we simply cannot afford to claim has been resolved and to put behind us. Uh, it's one of our biggest challenges is how to speak and live this in a way that can begin to make sense in a world where it no longer makes sense. So can you talk to our church about this
0: a bit? So, you know, we're obviously... As, as a parish, um, traditional and conservative in our views on human sexuality. M- maybe not as, as thoughtful and deep in our understanding of it and the ways in which you just communicated. I think something for all of us to start to think through. How, how, do, we, how do we speak about this within our own ecclesial setting, within our cultural setting, from the standpoint of pastoral care? I mean, this is an issue that's not going anywhere, and it's often—and I feel this way even at our own church—it's often just the kind of elephant in the room. We just don't want to talk about that. Keep kind of moving on until it's a crisis, and then we'll address it, and then we'll kind of move on again. But this is—this has to be a part of our discourse because it's a part of the discourse of our moment. We can't escape that. It's everywhere, and and as a father of of young children, um, I'm especially aware of that. So, can, can you help us think through? How do we talk about this as a church? How do, we, how do we enter into this prophetically in both gentle and courageous ways, in yeah, loving yeah. ways and humble ways? Um, I wish
1: I had, a, I had a blueprint for that, which I don't. I would But the say necessity of thing, speaking is here, right? Yeah, I mean, one thing I would say is it has to be done, one has to commit oneself to having this kind of discussion engagement consistently and patiently. This is not a one-shot deal. I know in in Toronto three years ago or so the General Synod, you know, it's the convention of of the canadian Anglican church was coming up to have a a, a big vote on changing the marriage canon of the national church so that it was no longer defined as male and and man and woman, but you just took that out. They weren't adding something else, they were just taking that out. Um, And so churches all of a sudden decided, conservative churches were talking about gosh, we we better talk about and I remember being invited to one of these things at, a, at a one of the more prominent evangelical Anglican church parishes in Toronto. Um, and they had me, and then they had sort of somebody, you know, from a more liberal Anglican, theologian, you know, the type of thing point, counterpoint. Um, and then we have questions. And um, A, I'm not sure that's the best way to do it. We uh, talked about that practically speaking. But the point was. It was like, gosh, we, we're about to have a vote. We never talked about it. Um, we better do something. So let's do it. And then we did it, and we did that. We were responsible. We had the discussion. Now we can get back to what we're supposed to do. But of course, it was too late for that. And, and, and there was a lot of tension, right? There was a lot of tension in the air. Uh, you know, the people coming and objecting to what I said, or objecting to what the other person said, and so on. And this is tough stuff. Nobody likes it. Unless one is willing to do it not just once, but over time.
0: Where does one do that?
1: I think there are lots of places. I'm not talking about having debates, so you're quite right. I think preaching is a normal place to do it. And I don't mean simply having sermons about. Well, what does the Bible say about sex? Um, I'm not saying you should never have one of those, but those are a little awkward uh, for all kinds of reasons. I remember a sermon I heard, and I was very grateful for it, by the way. I it was very, very uh, admiring of the cur- courage of the preacher. This is, again, at a big flagship evangelical Lincoln Church in Toronto. The sermon was about pornography. When was the last time you've heard a sermon about pornography? <laughs> that one was a little easier. See, that was a way to get into it. Because you weren't pointing your finger at gays or trans or this or that. Everybody agrees. Pornography is not a great idea. Um, And yet it is one of the most pervasive practices in our culture, especially among younger people from ages 12 through 35, 40, 50. (laughs) Um, And it isn't just men either, although it's more men than women, but it's going on. And so this this preacher got up and talked about it. And then he gave everybody a a, a thing you could do. There's this website, or this is not a website, it's this program where you can can get a a buddy who who you you click into your computer and they can see every time you go into a porn website. So you've rendered yourself accountable to somebody else, to your computer. And he shared all this information from the pulpit at the 11 a.m. traditional service. And I'm not sure that was the best place to do it, but it wasn't necessarily wrong either. I think that I was admiring of him, and I learned something. And he did it in a context of, I mean, the, the little bit of practical advice at the end wasn't scriptural, but he did it. His discussion of pornography was very integrated within a scriptural discussion about about the image of God, about our bodies that God has made for us. I mean, traditional things, big no news here. Why not talk about those things? Um, I think hitting people over the head in certain ways doesn't work very well. But there are ways you can integrate this more and be intentional about it. That's one thing. Um, The other thing is you talk about young people. I think that one has to be willing to have these things part of church education for young people. You have to have young people to teach, though. That's a big problem with churches. If you don't have young people there, you can't really engage that. And we've lost a lot of our younger people. In uh, our church, we, uh, in Colorado, and Ed knows about this, we had a, a couple, uh, they were they were doctors, um, and they were deeply committed to um sort of teaching about abstinence and so on. And she put together a whole little curriculum for, I don't know, what was the age? The junior high, sort (laughs) of. Yeah, mortified. Yeah, the the kids were mortified when they were subjected to this curriculum. But again, I was admiring, uh, I guess my point is, you have to be willing to figure this one out rather than to say, this is just way too much, and we're going to alienate everybody. So we better not do it at all. You have to like, recognize how you alienate people, be sensitive to that, but then not give up. And I don't, I don't know. You have to try. That's the patience part. You have to keep at it and not fall into. And, and the extremes are real too. You can, you, can, you know, I, uh, I mentioned the Irish Catholic priest who talked about hell. He also talked about masturbation and. Um, that that wasn't exactly something I was expecting. Um, uh, that wasn't a good thing. That's not the best way to sort of have your... Of course, it did not keep me from the church, having said that. I think we can also be overly worried about whether talking about these things are somehow going to blow up our credibility with with people. But it isn't just young people. That's, that's the other thing I wanted to, to say. Um, it isn't just about because a lot of times sex ed was about let's teach these young kids so that they don't have sex before whatever and, you know. Then it moved into safe sex and so on and so forth. Phew, we've done that and we've let somebody else do it for us. Um, I think it was it was um, it was the sermon on, on 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 Sunday that Craig gave that he mentioned his father um, trying to have that discussion with him, and Craig said it was pretty awkward. He didn't do it very well how what an act of love it was that his father tried to do that with him it was an act of love he may not even have recognized at the time but in retrospect we got to love one another enough to be awkward I had this
0: conversation with my my boys my first son looked at me like he was having a tooth pulled (laughs) and my second son when we finished the conversation he was like do tell more (laughs) <laughs> it was a very different <laughs>
1: yeah. okay, well, 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 let me, I want to say one last thing about that which goes to, to the book the other thing is and I think actually ultimately this is more important the teaching about sex can't be all by itself I mean it's about who we are as human beings so we have to teach from my point of view about what I call our mortal gifts we have to do that and yeah, we have to be willing to talk about uh, sickness, about death. We have to be willing to talk about the struggles of loss. Um, and this isn't just sort of facing our brokenness, although there's nothing wrong with that. It, actually, it's about talking about these are gifts. We have to be able to figure out how to, how to represent the fact that God has given us this life that's good. It is very good, even though it's fallen. He sent us out into, it's one of the images that I use at the beginning of the book, he sends Adam and Eve, he sends us out into this fallen world and he gives us robes of skin to cover us. In that, and the whole Christian Jewish tradition as well has looked at that and elaborated and thought about what these garments of skin mean. They're not a curse, they're a gift. What, what, how are you interpreting their gift? And so all these difficult things, are, are re, they are entwined with the fall, with, with with sin. And Jesus does overcome death, but he comes into this world of death and transfigures it. Um, and of course, you know, we all still die. He, he didn't get rid of that right now. There are reasons for that, which are not totally clear to me, and I doubt to anybody. But I am uh, convinced, and we should be convinced, that Jesus leaves us in this world. As Paul says, I'd rather be with you. I would love to go to heaven, but I'd rather be with you. Well, I'd rather go to heaven, but it's better that I be with you. What's the better part? What's the better part of being in this world, this mortal world? God wants us to figure that out faithfully in Christ. And only if we're willing to do that will sexuality find its kind of... um, fit in the kind of theological witness of
0: the church. Yes, it's interesting in the book of Ecclesiastes, and this has arrested me over the past several years, where you have the preacher being so honest about the fleeting character of human existence. It's here and then it's gone, It's it's sand through our fingers. And yet the counsel that he gives on the far side of that in various places is to embrace this life. And embrace the goodness of this life and, and enter into it. One of the major sort of metaphors that you have within the book is, and this is my last question. And we'll turn to Q and A. Is the arc of life? Can, can you talk about that a little bit, Ephraim? Tell us what you mean by that, and, and what's the, the sort of substance? Well, one of the of...
1: things I, this was again for the sexuality course I had to teach that I learned and I had never really paid attention to, was this long tradition in uh, the. It's, it's universal, but it's uh, it's not just Christian. But it, it really flourished within Christianity from early on, um, you know, Augustine and and all the way through the 19th century, of the stages of life. And you can, you know, you you can see these pictures. These pictures are all over the place, woodcuts, etchings, calendars, books. Um, Go online and just look up stages of life and then press Google Images and you'll see hundreds of these reproductions of these. Everybody
3: learned about them
1: the baby, the infant, the the crawling baby, the walking child, the playing child. I mean, they get elaborated more and more stages or fewer stages, seven, five of them, whatever. Uh, Youth, adulthood, mature mature adulthood, um, sort of you're still able to walk adulthood, but you're past mature adulthood, Uh, and then senility and then death. And one of the things that happened uh, that was part of the whole educational system in Christendom, when, when Christianity was part of the educational system, was that you taught everybody to be, you taught young people, but you also taught older people, to be aware of their stage in life, and to order their lives appropriately to that stage. Uh, there's a way to, to live properly as an adolescent. There's a way to live properly as a 70-year-old. There's a way to live properly as a 40-year-old as a, a and so on. You have to learn what that is, and that's, that's theological, that's moral, that's whatever. And then when you start mixing all that stuff up, everything goes haywire. Um, that, that is called the arc of life. And, and, and it, it follows birth and strengthening, maturing, um, procreating, having families. Uh, of course, it can, you can die before you get to all these points, but the whole arc then takes you to decline physically, and then finally to death. And one view of that is that's beautiful. That's not bad. That's a work of art. <laughs> that arc is a work of art. That's God's um, pattern in which he sketches something beautiful that is a human being. Um, and I've told this too many times, but uh, at least with Annette listening. Um, you know, as an older person, I want to know how to be old. I don't want to live life to the fullest water skiing when I'm 89. Um, you know, if I even could. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't if, if, if that's what you do, if there's something immoral about it. But I do think most of us can't and shouldn't. Um, most of us have to learn oh, if you can't water ski when you're 89, what are you called to do? But it's a calling. I tell a story, my father was an academic who wouldn't retire until he was 89. And I know for a fact that his dean wanted him to retire when he was around 75, at least. <laughs> but he had to keep going, and his classes got smaller and smaller, and so on and so forth. And now he's in, a, in an unassisted living place, and he still thinks he's, he's got to work. He's not working. He can't do the computer. He can't, he can't write. He can't read the book. Oh, but I've got to get my work done. You've got to. You know, his big thing has been we've got to get him a printer. And you know, for what? Um, Oh no, no, no! I have my papers to write, and I'll have to print something. I had to print out an article. He hasn't read an article in in three or four years. I mean, that's that's very sad. Um, In a way, it's admirable, right? I mean, here's somebody who's got who's so caught up in this and, and so on. But but I sort of wish he had learned how to be older. I wish he'd taught me how to be older, because I only know how to produce. That's what I was raised to do, was to work and work and work, and to be successful in this field, whether it's in the church, the academy, whatever. I've never had an example of somebody who knew how to grow old. And and you see, it's that generational thing. One of the big issues in our society is the. The segregation of generations, um, as well as the disintegration of identity, generational identity, at the same time, um, and we, we're we're going to have to rediscover. It's not always the same. Different cultures and different periods shifted. It's not like there's this. But the Bible does talk about it. The Bible has various places, Proverbs being a big one, but not just there, about the character of of being old, the character of being young. Um, you know, there's that part in 1 John, you know, old man, you do this, young man, you do this. Well, where did that come from? Well, it came from an understanding deeply held that we are at different places and have different callings in the arc of life. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, anyway, does that make any sense to your question? Um,
0: we went longer than I told you we would go, but questions? We'll take some time here. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Okay. okay. Yes, sir.
2: So, Going back to Burundi and East African revival, was there? I use this as
1: an edge to Pentecostal dimension
2: to that. Well, it, I would call it Pentecostal,
1: but there was no speaking in tongues, so they didn't. They didn't. They had healing, um, you know, prayers for healing and so on. But it was. It was. It, it. It started in a way quite independent from the Pentecostal movement that was already gaining steam in the 20s and here and there. So it was an independent revival. I mean I think really, it really was God. God did it the way he wanted to do it. Um, Sociologically, people have tried to study, you know, culturally what went on there. But it's a sui generis sort of revival, in that sense, and fascinating. Shannon, welcome to you.
2: You used the example of increasing lifespan starting in around 1900 as a nexus about which all of this began. Uh, how, then, do you account for not hearing anything about it with, we'll say, uh, Methuselah, uh,
1: Lamech,
2: Noah, and, and uh, any of the
1: other long... long well, I mean, it's, it, the, the whole, the whole <laughs> early Genesis um, generations of, of this highly long lifespan thing, uh, <coughs> phenomenon comes to an end. And so it's the psalmist who says to God, you've made our life, Um, what is it? It's three score, ten, and if, if we're fortunate, four score. Nothing actually says in the Bible why it ended up at that point and at that level. But it does appear that there's a kind of fading, if you will, in human experience of the memory and connection with Eden. And, you know, that's something worth thinking about. I'm not suggesting to dismiss it. But with respect to actual lifespan, it's pretty steady. Nobody much lived longer. I mean, as I say, the average lifespan was 40, but you had people who lived longer, but not much longer than eighty. But years. the point is,
2: they apparently didn't have the sexual
1: uh, he had a lot of problems. Yeah, no, he did. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the generations going on, and I mean, we'll start. See, Cain killing Abel is a sexual problem. That's one of the things I, I, I want to claim. It's not a sexual problem with respect to having sex, but it's a sexual problem about siblings. Siblings is about sex. And, and then they have to have another child, Seth, who becomes the next generation. We don't know what exactly happens to the, to the tribe of Cain. I mean, there are these views that it dies out. Does it die out in the flood? Uh, that's not the way eventually people saw it. Anyway, all I'm saying is things were going on familiarly, even in that period of lengthy days. And of course, Moses is living a long time, and the patriarchs are living very long, and all kinds of things are going on in there as well. Um, but they're also being dealt with. I guess that's my point. It's not that there's no sexual confusion or sin in a life that is understood as mortal. It's rather that that confusion and sin is far more visible in a way that can be confronted and dealt with. Um, I don't know that we're more sinful now than what we were in, in, in the days of David. I doubt it. But the kinds of sins we have are ones that we can't see very well uh, at all.
3: I mean, people say, is the world
1: getting better? And some things, things aren't better. A lot of things are not. But I don't want to deny the value of antibiotics. It'd be crazy to deny it. To do, well, maybe not crazy, but I think it'd be crazy to deny the value. That's a gift of God, too. So that's a good. You want to, I, I think we want to encourage health care uh, and so on. It's not like we want everybody to die before they're, you know, two-thirds or one-third of our children to die before they're ten. But but at the same time, we've lost a way then to talk about the reality of of our limitations, given that good. Charles? Yeah,
0: this this idea that uh, that we got from these pagan Greek philosophers about uh, the denigration of the physical body as opposed to the mind and the spirit. And... uh, Obviously, that crept into Western civilization very early (coughs) on. But what about the ancient Hebrews, and indeed, even uh, modern believing, practicing, uh, devout Jews? And how is it that they seem to have a much more perfectly integrated sense of the
3: body and the mind and the spirit, not only in their Theology, but in their day-to-day lives. Where, where does that come from? Is that part of their being God's chosen people and they haven't forgotten it? Or, or what do you think about
1: that? Well, I think, you know, I've got an Old Testament professor here. I think one of the... I mean, these are, things are complicated, so there's not just one reason, but I think a major issue that has been problematic is the um, sequestration or the drifting away of the Old Testament. as is a central text of the Christian church's life. it's not that it's gone, but you know, people read it that much. Do they know it well? Do we order our life according to it? Um, I think I think that's a that's a huge issue. And it's not that the New Testament it's not that the New Testament is over on the all spirit side, and the Old Testament is over all on the body side at all. I mean, people go there's Paul saying it's better not to be married if you're if you're not married. I mean, it's, it's tough to be married and so on, but then at the end of his all, he says a lot more and more repetitively at the end of all his letters about the relationship of husbands and wives and children and parents and so on, he's got all that as a robust part of his discussion of what the Christian life and church is about, but I do think the Old Testament, you yes, asked I, I think that there's no question that and people have argued about this, that, that the Old Testament was an anchor clearly, and to the degree that the Old Testament is central, because we see this in Calvinism as well, where the Old Testament became more important, again, compared to some other Christian traditions, that some of the robustness of this sense of the created life and its values. The Puritans! Mm-hmm. People think of the Puritans are somehow, I don't know, denigrating. The opposite. The Puritans were the most bodily-oriented people I have read. They loved Sex, in the modern sense, having sex. They enjoyed drinking beer. uh, And so there are things they didn't like, that maybe the dancing part wasn't so great and so on. But but they were highly rooted in the life of this world. And the Old Testament for them, they read as often or more than the new. Um, so think, I think,
0: think Leland, uh, Leland Riken's book on the Puritans is entitled Worldly Saints. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. So I think the Old Testament is a
1: big part. In Judaism, obviously, the the, the Torah and then the most larger Tanakh or the, just the our Old Testament is t- Can
0: we do two more? Oh. Tommy, you, and then we'll we'll let someone else Can have somebody, a somebody um, oh, back. Okay, okay. Call Tommy, Lee. go ahead. Somebody,
3: yeah. yeah, the um speaking of works more the in the chapter on
1: Right. I, I, you know, and we've talked all about marriage and, and stuff. At the moment, but the book has a has a chapter about friendship and about singleness and so on, because that's a central part of this life. And for all some of the reasons you said, and other reasons, widowhood and, and accidents, and um, you know, a lot of the people in the Christian church have lived singly, not as nuns and monks, and that too, but because they were widowed left single. Or there was a war and there was nobody to marry. I mean, these are the whole history of the church is filled with single people. And so how does that fit in? I mean, as you just asked, and how does that fit into this vision of kind of mortal life as being rooted in a kind of this vast network of sort of sexual life in its larger way? And as you pointed out, my view is that we do, we live with, we have to integrate this. And one of the the reasons that the monastic movement was good was that there were some big reasons it was bad, I think, ultimately, not intentionally, but ultimately. One of the reasons it was good is that it offered single people a married life in community, you could say. That was what You know, people very quickly gave up the hermetic existence. That was one of the original ways that the monastic life started in Christianity. People just go off be hermits, live all by themselves. But very quickly they realized, you know, a few people could do that. Most monks and nuns couldn't. You have to live together. You depend on each other. And so on and so forth. And so monastic communities became large families. Sometimes they were actually called families. Um, That's one thing. But the other thing is, at their best, they were integrated with the larger life in certain ways, to their witness, to purity, to virtue, to whatever. They, just like clergy. Clergy, uh, you know, are not meant to be just like everybody else. I'm not saying you're not supposed to be married or have kids or whatever. You are appropriately held to certain accountability certain standards and certain interests and a certain focus so that you can help everybody else see those things that otherwise they might not. The single life is one of those things. But one has to see the single... Most people who are single don't choose to be single. So it's hard to say it's a vocation. It is a vocation. Everything in our life is given to us as a calling by God. Not one that we've chosen. Vocation is not something we choose. It's something we're given. And and we have to hear it. And singleness is something we can hear. And how do we integrate it in this tree, as you said? A friendship is one of the biggest ones. And married couples and families have to be held accountable to their friendships and their homes being open to single people. That's something that we're not necessarily good at either on the other side. Um, You know, whether it's in friendships and meals and so on and so forth. Um, and I don't have a lot of practical advice on this because this is new ground. I mean, there's a, there's a way in which we're we're, we're, we're we're explorers in this culture. Uh, we've got tools from the past, but we're moving in a place which is undiscovered territory. Yeah, and so I'm not shy in admitting I don't know how to do this, but I think we should be trying.
0: Colby, you want to hop in?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm, so I'm thinking
2: of that in our prayer book tradition, Service, uh, commonly called the Churching of Women, but purification after childbirth, Thanksgiving after childbirth. And it's pretty explicit about making its connections to Vegas 12. Anna. Yeah, but, but Anna's there as well, and so we have these two people that are preparing for death, and, and Simeon actually takes the baby Christ up into his arms, and so this this way of, like, mm-hmm. I guess I'm having trouble tying it. To well, I, no, that's piece. wonderful.
1: You're absolutely right. That's that. And to me, that's the right way to read the Bible around these matters, to see who's there and how their lives are linked and what the picture then is given, in this case, of the arc of life and its work complex uh, form biblically is offered yeah there's Simeon Um, and 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 you know of course one of the things he says is that Mary's heart is going to be pierced Mm -hmm. by her child we have to remember that Mary loses her child uh, at an age which for all of us uh, in our culture is just horrendous a young adult or you know pretty young adult child killed um, but that's part of this life, and and yet he sees this also as part of the hope of Israel, and the light that we live by. And so he's lodged the light of salvation that Jesus brings in the midst of what, for anybody in his era, would have been normal life in some way. Isn't that wonderful? Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah,
0: Rhett, I'm going to give you the last question. For my
2: not gonna be as good as that one. So I think the thing that I struggle with is on the issue of sexuality is is that it's too easy for me to like kind of think about and I've never really heard I was I thought you were about to say it, but I've never really heard the other side <coughs> from our view on sexuality in our church like really enunciate what what an attorney, I kind of see things in, in, in sort of legalistic ways, and I mean, the way I see it is, it's a sin, just like the fact that I get angry my kids a sin, and I, you know, and greedy, and lie, and all this other stuff, but the, the difference is, is that the church is not sanctioning that, you know I mean, there's no official sanction of my sin, it's my sin. I want Jesus to wash me in the blood so that I can approach the cross and be in a relationship with God, etc., etc. But when it comes to the sexuality question, it's right there, and yet they're trying. I don't. I don't understand how they.
1: But well, one of the way. I mean, I don't. I'm not going to. I'm not going to try to summarize what these course. views are. Yeah. They're there. Some of them are quite sophisticated. I would say a lot of them trade. This goes to this discussion we've been having. A lot of the, 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 the views that support things like gay marriage and so on trade on some of the values that have been floating around, not just the culture, but even the Christian church. For instance, as I talked about, kind of this idealist sense. So um, it's not bodies, it's not children who die uh, or who grow, and that's not what's pressing the matter, it's, it's ideals like love or ideals like um you know affection and, and mutual help and so on which obviously and it's true and I know it personally obviously gay couples can, can can engage in those things but to me and so you know and I think those can be powerful and they are powerful especially in our culture uh to a lot of people they're very persuasive um but one of the things I've been trying to say, though, is that sexuality is not about a bunch of ideals. It's not about being good. It's not about showing love. Surely those should all be part of it. It's about what happens in time with our bodies and what God does with them and what he has given us with, uh, for and for and how these are all interwoven in the branch the branches of this tree of human history that God has placed us with here. And those are a whole lot of different... I mean, here, here's... Uh, this is gonna get too far afield, but I think if we had greater confidence and understanding of, of that aspect, we might actually be more patient <laughs> in, in, in that sense with the place in which, in which possibly same-sexual attractions might be able to be seen as having some kind of meaning. Within the within the Christian framework but we're not there yet because we don't have that framework very clearly articulated for ourselves and so that the pressing of the same-sex framework is all all-encompassing and it can't be it can't be as far as I can tell so,
0: uh... Ephraim, thank you for... right. thank you That's... We'll, we'll close in prayer and then um, thank you all for coming out I'm really surprised to see so many of you so what a, what a treat to have you here um, and we'll hang out a little bit Ephraim's here so if you want to get grab him or his wife Annette she's in the back as well so let's let's close in prayer our Father we're grateful that you have uh, drawn us together this evening and challenged us to think and to reflect on what it means Lord to be creatures in this world I pray oh Father that you will give us the gift of repentance Lord so that we order Lord, this mortal life toward the claims that you have on us from our births all the way to our deaths. Shape us that way individually. And Lord, in your grace and your mercy, shape our parish in this way as well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.